We're in this series called Emmanuel, God with us, and it's uh, based on the first couple of chapters of Matthew. And so let me see what page we are on. Uh, That's complicated because there's no page number on it, but it's the page before 808, so 807. And I, I don't know about you, but I think for a lot of us, our lives are not picture perfect. You know, you see the Christmas cards and they've always got these beautiful images on, either completely bizarre images of reindeers and, and you know, overly uh, fed, big white bearded types. Or if you get like a traditional Christmas type of card, you get a card with Mary and Joseph and the baby and happy cows and non-crying Jesus. And it just seems so picture perfect, a little bit of snow falling. And it can be a little bit like that, can't it? The Christmas season can be a bit of a a manic season, but in the midst of it, there's this kind of moment of quietness as we think about the first Christmas, and it just seems so tranquil and so otherworldly. And then we come back to our own lives, and it feels a bit like, oh, that was a big shock, a big shift, as we come back to, to the realities that we live with, because we don't live in that kind of picture perfect world, do we? We live with a lot of questions, questions about how's this going to work out and what's this going to mean and now this has come into my life and I don't know how that fits and and how are we going to pay that bill and how are we going to deal with this issue and there's this problem in the family and there's all of these kind of swirling issues that I think we're starting to realize is kind of normal life. And it doesn't seem like a day goes by where something doesn't sort of go wrong. And sometimes in the midst of the rhythm of the sort of going wrong, there's something big. The phone rings or you get an email or someone drops a bomb on you in conversation and suddenly it's like the world just stops and you've got a real problem to deal with. And you kind of crave the little problems. And life's like that, isn't it? It just seems to be a whole set of questions and a whole set of struggles and a whole set of difficulties. And so it's no wonder that people like the Christmas story because just for a moment, it's just a little glimpse of another worldly kind of nice, picturesque, tranquil moment. Or is it? We're going to look at the end of Matthew chapter 1. And I love this passage. It's a short passage, but I love it because it speaks into the reality that we live in. It speaks uh, into the reality of living under a cloud of question marks, under a whole fog of uncertainties, a whole host of difficulties that just seem to come one after the other, one on top of the other. And you read Matthew chapter 1, and you get to the part we're going to look at. And if you have eyes to see it, if if maybe someone points it out to you, which I'm going to do now, you realize, oh my goodness, Christmas wasn't quite so picture perfect for them either. They were living in the midst of questions and uncertainties and struggles too. So let's look at it. Matthew chapter 1, page, uh, what did I say, 807. And right at the bottom of the first column, it's got this little uh, kind of title that they've added to help us find it. The birth of Jesus Christ. Little number 18, that's the verse we're going to start with. And it begins like this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Okay, let's just pause there. The birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. It's an introduction to a fact, to a story that actually happened. Just like we saw last week, this doesn't begin once upon a time. This isn't a fairy tale. This begins as if it's recounting something that actually happened. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. 
And now last week we were looking at the 17 verses before that, the genealogy of Jesus, all the, the generations going right the way back for a couple of thousand years to the time of Abraham. And, and I, I pointed out last week that you read through that list and you've got this whole list of names and it seems to be... Um, it seems to be kind of like an overwhelming list of unpronounceable names, but actually what we have is 42 uh, landing points in history that declare to us this is a historical story. This is a reality that is being depicted. This is not a fairy tale. This is truth. These were real people who lived real lives and faced real struggles and had real children who had real children who had real children and it gets all the way down and we come to the birth of Jesus Christ. We also saw that there was a structure to that, that the whole thing was shaped by God's plan. That is, it kind of goes Abraham to David to the exile to Jesus and we notice that in each one of those touchdown points, there's a definite sense of God revealing more of his plan. God is doing, uh, working out his purposes and as we are messing it up and rebelling against him and making it difficult, he just leans in and gives more plan, more revelation, more promise. And so we see that Abraham promises from God. Then David promises from God. The nation of Israel around the time of the exile promises from God. And all the way through, God is working out his purposes. And so it's shaped by his plan. And it's all leading to this, the birth of Jesus Christ. But then the third thing we saw last week, and it's the, uh, really important that we see it this week because it's the setup for what we're about to see, is that the whole story, these 42 generations coming down, they're colored in with God's grace. Because the more you know the names, the more you know the stories, the more you realize these were normal people. These were people that struggled and doubted and feared. And in their fear, gave their wives away. There's a couple of those. Someone who took somebody else's wife and committed adultery and then committed murder. You've got a nation that failed to trust God and was disciplined by him for their lack of faith in him. I mean, this is a, a list of people that are very real, very normal people who certainly weren't sort of the creme de la creme, as they say. This was the, the rough people, the real people. And in the midst of it, most unusually, it seems like it's designed to catch our attention, we get these four ladies. Very unlikely in an ancient document like this, a genealogy, to get women included. It's just not the way they functioned in those days. They just put the fathers and the sons and the sons and the sons. But here we've got these four women. And actually, uh, most of these women, maybe all of these women, were women of faith, women who trusted God, women who lived lives that ultimately pleased God by their faith. And yet all of them had question marks hanging over them. There, there was one who dressed up like a, a religious prostitute in order to uh, make something happen. That's not very you know, nice. There's someone else who was a prostitute. That's also not very nice. There was another one who... Um, was uh, putting herself into a totally compromised situation with a drunk man in the middle of the night. That's not very wise. And then there's another one who did commit adultery with the king of Israel. So we're talking about four really questionable stories. And yet they're there and they're not hidden. And it's like the writer is putting them there so that we can see, look, God has worked and is working in the midst of really messy situations and really gruesome sins. Oh, and by the way, there's another woman. It's Mary, the wife of Joseph, through whom Jesus was born. 
She was also a, a good person. She was a, a virgin in Nazareth. That in itself was a bit of a miracle. Nazareth was a rough town. It was a town right next to another town where soldiers, uh, I was going to say American soldiers, historical slip, where Roman soldiers were placed. And whether they're American or Roman or British or whatever, when soldiers are garrisoned in a town, the towns nearby may have peace, but they don't necessarily have tranquility. You know, soldiers tend to let loose. They tend to kind of live uh, as far as they're concerned with whatever's around them. And Nazareth was a rough place. It was sort of a, a truck stop on the way to somewhere better. And so whether we're talking, you know, truckers or soldiers or sailors, there's no sailors, but whatever we're talking about, when there's men who are not living the way they should, the town ends up being a bit of a train wreck, doesn't it? And so that was the situation in Nazareth. And Mary was a virgin in that town, which is almost shocking. And then we get to this story where we're going to find there's a question mark hanging over Mary as well. So now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. This is God's plan coming together. This great plan that has spanned thousands of years and all of these promises. A plan that has included a whole host of names with very colorful stories. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Again, let's pause and just try to enter into that situation. Joseph was a young man, maybe 20-ish. Mary was a really uh, young teenage girl. Okay, so Joseph, we know, is a carpenter. Mary was his betrothed. Betrothed is not a thing we have these days, but it's kind of like the marriage had been arranged. It's stronger than a fiancé, okay? This is stronger than an engagement. It means the the, the deal's in place. The marriage is arranged. Uh, All the exchanges of money and so on that would happen in that culture, that's all happened. That's all been done. And now they're basically effectively married, but they're not technically married, if you know what I mean. So they don't live together yet because they're not actually married. But if they were to separate, it would require a divorce. So it's a really strong commitment. Now, if you've ever been around anyone that's uh, engaged, which is kind of our cultural equivalent, you know that, that it's a time of all sorts of, uh, of excitement and anticipation and anxiety and, uh, and worries and fears and, and, and plans. And, you know, we've got to get the catering organized and have we got a photographer yet? And, and what about the venue and what about the reception? And it just becomes this kind of swirl of activity with an, all, uh, an overwhelming sense of anticipation. Joseph would have had that. Joseph would have been busy building the house that he was going to bring his young bride home to. Mary would have been busy anticipating the wedding and making sure that she was ready for it. There would have been a a swarm of activity, all of the emotions, all of that stuff. And then Mary starts to show. That's one of those moments, isn't it, where you don't suddenly start thinking about the rest of your life. It's one of those moments where you wonder, how am I going to take another breath? Like, How is it possible that Mary is pregnant? Is it a soldier? Was it, was it some other boy in town? What, what, who, what, how, when? I mean, all the questions, all the emotions, all the turmoil, and Joseph is right in the midst of that. 
And you know what I, I really respect and appreciate about Joseph? He knows that it wasn't him. Right? He knows what's going on is not him. He doesn't know anything else, but it says he was a just man and he was unwilling to put her to shame. Now, what that means is in a, in a shame honor culture, she has become pregnant and so she has brought this great big black cloud of shame over the both of them. And when there is shame... The, the natural impulse is to save face. And so the natural thing for Joseph to do would be to shame her so that he could somehow try to pick up the pieces of his own reputation. You know, just, just kind of make it a thing. You know, make it public. I don't know how this happened. It was nothing to do with me. And I'm going to make a big scene because I'm a just man. But he doesn't do that. Technically, legally, he could have called for her to be stoned to death for this. Now, there's no evidence that that was happening at that time, so I don't think it was necessarily a very real threat. But technically, he would be within his rights to say she uh, has, has sinned and she should be killed for this. But instead of that, and instead of shaming her, instead of making a scene to protect himself, Joseph does something that I think is incredibly honorable in this circumstance. He wants to just deal with it quietly to protect her, I think. It doesn't protect him. Everyone would know. The rumors would go around. It would, you know, the, the, the whole town would be uh, all of a Twitter, right? They'd all be talking about it, and it would make him look really bad, but he wanted to do it in such a way that, that she could somehow be protected. I mean, I, I don't know much about Joseph, but I'm impressed with this guy. Actually, I'm impressed with any stepdad or stepmom. To, to raise somebody else's children, as it turns out he will do, it is an astonishing thing. Right? Anyone who adopts a child, fosters a child. I mean, being a parent's hard enough, but, but when it's not your own. I mean, this, is, this guy is, is a bit of a hero of mine. I, I think Joseph's a wonderful guy, but we get a glimpse of it already. He's caring for her when the natural thing would be to care for himself. He doesn't know what's going on. He's not sat there pondering his genealogy. But I'm a descendant of David. He's not thinking about that. He's, he's thinking thoughts he, wishes, he wished he could just get rid of. He's lying awake at night staring at the ceiling. He, he's just trying to, to put it all together and trying to stop thinking about it all at once. And he's in the midst of that turmoil. And it says in verse 20, obviously at some point he did fall asleep because verse 20 tells us, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, that's a very significant thing. I, I would imagine. I've never had a, an angel come to me in a dream. But, but when an angel comes, it's usually like a message from God. So this is, this is a sort of ooh, moment. He's lying there fast asleep finally. And this angel comes to him and brings him this message. And the whole message makes sense, doesn't it? In, in light of his circumstance. Don't fear to take her as your wife. That would be a natural fear at this point. It answers, the angel answers the question. The child which is in her is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he's, he's, got, he's got a name, and you're going to name him, Joseph. You're going to be part of this child's life. You're going to do the dad rights of naming the child, and you're to call him Jesus. 
because he's going to save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus wasn't an unusual name. In fact, I think I'm right in saying it was the fourth most common boy's name at that time in that part of the world. There was loads of Jesuses running around. That might confuse you, but there was loads of little Jesuses that would, you know, uh, steal your football or throw stones at your house or whatever. This one was a bit different. He wouldn't do those things, but but he was uh, was going to be a little Jesus. But it wasn't an accident, his name, because his name meant Savior. God saves. And so in the midst of this great fog and cloud of, uh, of kind of sin, as far as Joseph's concerned, suddenly the light shines through. Here's the answer. Here's not only a child conceived by the Spirit. Here is the child who is going to deal with the whole sin problem. Now, I don't know how much processing Joseph could do in the dream. I don't know. Have you ever processed and thought in a dream sometimes I have a dream and I wake up thinking I've just had this amazing thought and then I rush you know to my computer or something and try and write it down and it's total garbage there's no value in it whatsoever but it made total sense when I was asleep you ever had that or maybe that's just me anyway so so I don't know how much processing Joseph would have done in his dream but but I'm sure that the processing would have carried on think about it An angel comes and explains the pregnancy. Great. That's wonderful news. Hang on a second. That doesn't answer a whole host of questions. It answers the how question, but it doesn't answer the so what question. It doesn't answer the what if question. It doesn't answer the how is it going to work out question. Just think of the number of questions that would have been swirling in Joseph and Mary's minds during these days of pregnancy. They must have been overwhelming. How are we going to function in a community that thinks we've sinned when actually you're telling us that this is the Messiah, this is the Christ? How are we supposed to look people in the eye? How are we supposed to have conversation? How are we supposed to function in life when everybody thinks they know what happened, but they don't? How's Mary going to cope when she goes to the well to get water and there's all the snide comments behind her back? How's she going to cope when she walks out of her door and people turn away and pretend they were talking about something else? How's Joseph going to cope when he's on the building site and he just hears little snatches of conversation and he knows exactly what they're talking about? What about when Mary brings, jo- uh, uh, Mary brings Jesus with a packed lunch for, for Joseph, for dad, in quotes, uh, at lunchtime on the building site, and Joseph's there putting the lintel up over the door. And, yeah, just a second, I'll be right there, son. And then he hears somebody kind of, son. How's it, how's it going to work out? When, when someone comes to Joseph, the carpenter, and says, hey, Joseph, uh, can you give me a quote for some work? And Joseph says, look, here's my quote. And they say, oh, that's, that's a good price. Well, you can trust me can we? How's he supposed to function with people all around him that think that they know the truth and the truth, you, I mean, what does he do? Does he go around saying, no, no, it's okay, an angel told me that God did it. Oh, that's all right then. Like no one's ever going to make another comment after they hear that. I'm sure that he'd processed all of those things and decided very quickly after the angel visited him, it's probably best not to say anything. Let's just try to live with it. Because Who's going to believe the reality of what was going on? The the angel came and answered one very major question. But he left thousands of unanswered ones. 
And what I appreciate about this passage and uh, this story is the fact that for Mary and for Joseph, yes, they had a visit from an angel, and I'd love that. That would be amazing, I think. But, but they didn't have answers to everything else. And they lived in the midst of uncertainty and doubt and struggle, just like we do. You know, the Bible's full of stories like this. Stories that if you put yourself into their sandals and start to turn on your imaginer, you start to realize, no, hang on a second, they actually knew very little. Sometimes we we like to think or we like to buy into the idea that when you're a Christian, if you trust Jesus, then you get all the answers to all your questions. If you'll just trust Jesus enough, then he'll fix everything in your life. If you've got a health problem, he'll fix it. If you've got a money problem, he'll solve it. If you've got any, any issue whatsoever, just trust Jesus enough and everything's going to be great. The Bible does not promise that. The Bible does not tell us that. In fact, the Bible tells us the opposite, that often living in relationship with God means living with uncertainty, living with doubts, living with fears, living with unanswered questions. Mary and Joseph did not know the answer to the vast majority of their questions. The the passage goes on, verse 22, just to underline the significance of, of what's happening here. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, we haven't got time to go into that, but, but basically that 700 years before this happened, there was a king in Judah, in, in Israel as we'd think of it, called Ahaz. And God gave Ahaz a sign. Ahaz was being all pompous and saying, I don't need a sign from God. And God said, well, you're going to get one anyway. That young lady, the, you know, the virgin, the unmarried one, she's going to have a child. And his name's going to be Emmanuel and so on. So basically it was like this unmarried young woman is going to have a child and the naming of that child is going to be significant. And you read it through if you want to, Isaiah chapter 7 to 12. And there's some great names, by the way. You know, I know there's some pregnant people here thinking of baby names. Sheer Jashub, don't hear many of those. Um, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, my personal favorite. Okay, so there are these names, but the, the overarching umbrella name is Emmanuel because these babies are a sign that God is with us. Now, what was true for Ahaz was just that this girl got married, got pregnant, had a child and named it. That's not exactly miraculous in some ways, but that was kind of the way it worked. But it was so much more true for Jesus because Mary was a virgin and she did conceive miraculously and she did have a child and his name is very significant because he's God with us, the God who saves. He's Emmanuel, his name is Jesus. And so what was true in Ahaz's day, 700 years before, becomes even more true. It's like filled up to the brim in terms of its fulfillment in the time of Jesus. And Matthew's saying, that's what's going on here. But Mary and Joseph didn't really think about that. They weren't sat there pondering, probably. Well, maybe they were, actually. Virgin shall conceive. Maybe it was their favorite passage for a while. But they didn't have the same perspective that we have. They didn't have the rest of the story. All they knew that Jesus was from God and he was going to deal with sin. How? They didn't know. They didn't have all the answers. Verse 24, I love this. When Joseph woke from sleep, he asked a whole host of questions. No, it says he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. 
Just simple obedience. That's what you do. If you really trust a message from God, you just obey it. And he obeyed it. He took his wife, that that is, he took her into his house to protect her from all that was going on, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And when she'd given birth to a son, Joseph named him Jesus. One of the reasons I love this passage is because of all the unanswered questions, all the uncertainties, all the, the struggles that they lived with simply by faith. Another thing I love about it is the fact that it makes it really clear what we're supposed to get from it. If you're looking at that passage, it's like within however many verses, it repeats several times. You are to name him Jesus, and he shall be called Emmanuel, and he named him Jesus. By repetition, it's making the point that the important thing here is not the answer to the questions. It's the child that was going to be born. And so what was true for Mary and Joseph, therefore, is true for us. We live with uncertainty and with doubts, with uh, situations that we don't know how they're going to work out, with problems that we don't know how to resolve, with situations where we can't control what other people think. We live in the midst of all of that chaos, which is life in this world. And we don't know what, but we know who. That's all they had. They didn't know what was going to happen, but they knew who the baby was. They didn't know what if this happens, how will we cope, but they knew who the baby was. They didn't know how's it going to play out in the long run, but they knew who the baby was. And they didn't know what, and they didn't know how, and they didn't know what if, and they didn't know when. They didn't know a whole host of things, but they knew who the baby was, and the baby was Jesus. And somehow, they didn't even know how, we do. They did not even know how that somehow this baby was going to save people from their sins. This baby is God with us. Now, you might be sitting here today thinking, I'd love to have a visit from an angel. That'd be great, wouldn't it? But don't think about that as if that's like the big deal here. If I had a visit from an angel, I'd be a person of faith too. No, you'd be scared to, but but that's not the real issue. The real issue is that they did not know what, but they they knew who. And if they knew who because of the visit and the vision of the angel, we know who because the Bible tells us the rest of the story. We know that this child would grow up and be fully, fully God and fully human and fully one. And we don't necessarily get how that works, but we know that because of who he was, because he wasn't sinful, he, he never sinned, he never thought a wrong thought, never did anything wrong. He was absolutely perfect. And because of that, we know that he was able to then go to the cross and to die a death that he didn't deserve. They didn't know how that was going to work out. As far as we can tell, Joseph didn't live to see that day because he never shows up once Jesus is a grown-up. Mary did. She got to be there and to watch it. I'm not sure that was better, watching her own son dying on the cross. But they didn't know at this point all of the details we know. We know that Jesus grew up and became this perfect, miracle-working, wonderful teaching, exemplary person who was able to go to the cross and die in our place. We know that on the third day he rose from the dead and that there's, there's evidence to support that. And if you want to chase the facts, please do so. Jesus actually, literally, historically, reality, he rose from the dead and he's conquered death. And we know all the rest of the story that they didn't know. But still there are going to be times where we say, yeah, I know that. 
but I don't know about this. I don't know how this situation is going to work out. I don't know how the plan of God is is going to play out in this difficult time in my life or in this struggle in our marriage or in this uncertainty with my finances. There's a whole host of questions, aren't there? And we live in the cloud of, of questioning. And we don't know what, and we don't know what if, and we don't know when, and we don't know how. But like Mary and Joseph, we do know who. Maybe that's enough. Maybe Jesus is enough. And instead of turning to to, to teachers that are going to tell us that if you'll trust Jesus, he'll fix everything in your life, maybe we can turn to Jesus and just say, Jesus, I don't even know how you're going to work this out, but I want you to know that I'm trusting you. Maybe, maybe we can spend time reading on in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and see Jesus in action to get to know him better in order to be able to trust him more. But even then, we're not going to know how everything's going to work out. There are going to be times where things go wrong, where, where medically we face challenges that don't get resolved, where financially we face crises. Where there are going to be all sorts of difficulties in life. And we don't know how it's going to be, but we know who is going to deal with the sin problem. Uh, that is Jesus. And we know who is God with us so that we're not on our own. That is Emmanuel. That, that is Jesus. And we know who it is that has got us in his hands and is caring for us and is carrying us forward. And so without knowing what or when or how or what if or then what, we can just cling to the who that we know. Just say, Lord, I'm trusting you. You're all I've got and you're all I need. You're Emmanuel. You are God with us. He's with us in the difficult times. He's Jesus. He's God who saves his people from their sins. And ultimately, all the the mess that we live in, all the uncertainties that we're surrounded by, they may not be caused by our sin, but they are caused by the fact that sin has messed up the world, right? Just because you, you have an illness doesn't mean that you've sinned, but sin is the reason why there's illness. Sin is the reason why there's financial uncertainty. It's not necessarily your sin, but, but sin has messed up the system, hasn't it? Sin has messed up this world in terms of relationships. It may not be your fault that the relationship's gone sour, but relationships go sour because we live in a sinful world. And so ultimately, whether we're talking about relationships or health or money, whatever it is we're talking about, whatever the struggle might be, the root, even if it's not your sin, it is sin. And ultimately, the answer to sin is Jesus because he came into this world to die on that cross to rescue us from sin so that one day, We can be in his presence and we can be free of it. One day, we won't be asking questions. One day, we won't be shedding tears. One day, we won't be wondering why or how or when. One day, we'll be looking at Jesus and we'll say, now I know. Now I can see. Now I've got what you promised. And so we live today for that day. Not with all the answers. In fact, we maybe have more questions than anyone else. But one question for us is answered. The who question. We don't know what. We don't know when. We don't know how. But we do know who. And that who is enough if it's God saving us from our sins, if it's God with us. Let's pray. Father, we we sit here as a as a group of people who are 
living in a messy world and often dealing with messy situations. And Lord, to be honest, we sit here perhaps with more questions than we thought we would have at this stage in our lives. And we just want to say thank you that you come into this mess. You come into our world and you come to be with us, not just to hold our hands through it, but ultimately to take our place. And the ultimate price was paid on that cross and you've made it possible for us to be released from our sin, released from our guilt, released from the penalty, released from our separation and brought into life, which is to know you and your father. And we just want to say thank you. Please protect us from ideas of having all questions answered. Ideas that would distract us from you to focus us in on our own faith as if by by our own faith we can fix everything. Instead, keep our eyes fixed on you. Keep our gaze fixed on you so that we can live lives of faith just like Mary and Joseph did. Not knowing all the answers, but knowing who you were. And knowing that God was going to work everything out through you. Lord Jesus, would you make that reality the the truth that grips us in these coming days. And now as we have a a brief time where we take communion together. Lord, we pray that the the bread and the juice would, uh, would just remind us again of the other end of the story. Of the answer to the how question that Mary and Joseph didn't have, but we do. How you are going to save us from our sins. And we pray that in a moment when we take the bread and the juice, that our hearts would be stirred with gratitude for all that you've done for us. We pray to you, Father, in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen.